Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Hi, Charles. Hello, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well today. Yes, and this time we're going to be reversing roles. So I'm going to sit on the other side of the chair, and you're going to be the one interviewing me, as promised, of course. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So we finally get to turn the tables on uh, Bernard because, let's face it, this is going to be your 200th episode, which is quite an achievement for doing 200 of those in only three years. And what I realized is, I mean, I've done quite a few of the podcasts with you and I've listened to a lot of them. And we always learn a lot about the guests, but in reality, we really don't know that much about you. So why don't we kick off by just telling us a bit about you and your background and what keeps you busy? So just to give myself an introduction, my name is Bernard Leung and the host of Analyze Asia podcast. I started off in academia as a theoretical physicist specializing in astrophysics and cosmology, graduated from the Cavendish Laboratory. So after that, I did my postdoctoral work in analyzing the human genome in the Sanger Institute in the UK. Most of my research work revolved around pattern recognition using machine learning and mathematical models that have become what today in the commercial world we call big data and artificial intelligence. Then I came back to Singapore, decided that academia is commoditized and moved to the commercial world. So I did two startups. So one acquired and one failed. The one that failed is called Chalkboard, a mobile location-based advertising network, which I raised funding from Joey Ito, now the head of MIT Media Lab. The other one is an online media website, which eventually got acquired by Tech in Asia. So after I shutting down my startup, so I decided that I'll be doing another one sometime, but felt that I wasn't ready. So the reason is because I want to be the CEO for the next one. So I decided to go to the corporate world and be a better manager. So I worked as a technology manager doing products for the CEO for a company now called Vistaprint, but it's now known as Simpress. Just before I about to head to US to join Amazon as a senior product manager, I was recruited by Wolfgang Bayer, the former CEO of Singpost, to join his executive leadership team as the head of digital. To cut the long story short, I took the job that was 10 times more challenging than the Amazon one and got half the compensation. So it turned out on hindsight, I probably done some of my best work there by leading the first the digital team and then the post office team. Now I'm the head of digital and the post office network. My day job revolves around running the business of both business units and leading the digital transformation in the consumer facing side. I led the joint team between Singpost and IDA Labs, now IMDA, that did the first secure and authentic drone delivery flight, which is actually 20% of my actual work. So the major project which I actually have undertaken is actually a digital transformation of Singpost. The way to think about it is that the future is to have 5 million post offices in Singapore. It means you and I should be able to access all services from the postal on my smartphone, tablet, PC, anytime, anywhere. But in between that world to now, we need to make a transition. So we want to ease the older generation toward the mobile first world. So we took the SAM kiosk, which is something, a kiosk in Singapore that allow people to do payments and purchase of postage labels to now our omni-channel platform for retail access from web and mobile. So we won the prestigious World Post and Parcel Award recently in Europe for this year for the retail access category for the SAM platform. And that enables a lot of people to do remittances and purchase magazines now from my web and mobile app. So that's basically the long story short about my background. 
Okay, very good. Well, as someone who's lived in quite a few different countries and had to deal with postal services in those countries, uh, I can say that the experience here is far easier and better than I've experienced before. So you've done a good job with that. So that's what you do in, uh, as your regular day job. You also manage uh, Analyze Asia and run the podcast. But last year, you also attended Singularity U. So for people who aren't familiar with it, why don't you give the listeners a brief overview and tell us what you learned what, by attending Singularity U and how it's changed the way that you work and your vision for the future. So for those who don't know, Singularity U is founded by Ray Kurzweil, author of the famous book, The Singularity is Near, which is quoted by many leading CEOs, including Masayoshi Sun from SoftBank, that the future of technology will lead to a singularity. And Peter Demandis, who found the XPRIZE that led to the first successful prototype commercial space flight in the US by Kurt Rutan with Spaceship One. So the focus of Singularity University, which we call SU, is to focus on developing solutions using exponential technologies, for example, AI, blockchain, additive manufacturing, bio and nanotech to solve humanity's problem for 1 billion people. So I spent two and a half months in NASA, AIM Center at Mountain View, Silicon Valley in the Global Solutions Program, sponsored fully by Google US and Genentech. So I learned a lot about the exponential technologies, and having interesting conversations such as technology displacement of labor and at the same time work on a project that eventually my friends took it and built a startup. So the project I worked on was actually disrupting architecture and where the idea is to bring down the cost of building a house by two orders of magnitude. So the experience has been great. So not because of the things I learned there, but also the people. The most important lesson I learned is that while we have a lot of exponential technology, we need to figure out some exponential empathy to help humanity in making their lives better, meaning in the adoption of technology and in terms of thinking about how technology will affect our lives when, you know, you and I can be very free, you know, when robots are taking over our jobs. But the other thing I thought I learned quite well is actually is to control my stress. So one of the things they did in that course was something called human performance. I was actually plagued by a lot of heartburns and high cholesterol problems previously. So they designed this program to have highly stressed people to relax and reach flow in their work. So I learned to meditate and control my stress. So when I got back, I actually stopped taking the medication that was prescribed by my doctor daily. And my doctor was actually shocked at my medical results because everything has gone back to normal. And what I think I picked up in the human performance class is something that will prepare me for the future, which I think I will probably be a CEO in the future startup that I want to build. So I think that that probably is, it changed the way that how I think about where I'm going in the future. Okay, sounds very good. You're a busy man. So um, I should also let the listeners know that we did reach out on Twitter and pulled in a number of questions from there that people would like me to ask of Bernard today. But the first question I'll ask from somebody is actually from a mutual contact of ours. And uh, she knows you quite well. And we were talking about how busy you are, because in addition to running the podcast, to working at SingPost, um, you also have a family, you're an avid reader. And the one thing that she said that I have to ask you is, do you ever sleep? Because you seem like the busiest guy that we've ever come across. Yes, I do sleep. And since I was married, my wife has mandated eight hours of sleep for me. So you actually sleep more than me, which is scary, which means you're just a lot more efficient than I am. So, okay. So and then the second question she wanted me to ask was, what do you do or what would you do if you ever have any free time? So to actually answer that question, what happens before I got married is that I sleep between four to six hours a day. So a lot of people think about free time in terms of weekends. So what I did instead is I built spaces of free time in my daily weekdays. So for example, one of the things I do typically about 30 minutes a day, I'll read a book of my choice. 
And that's usually during my lunchtime or take a minute out to meditate and relax. So as for the podcast, I can only spend five hours in the weekends on top of shopping for groceries, like which all households do, and spending two hours with my daughter every night between 7 and 9 p.m. So we're going to have another kid coming in the next month. And so I have to reconfigure time for my hobbies, which means including podcasting time. So you may be surprised that one thing I learned from a book by Ron Chernoff called Titan, which is the life of John D. Rockefeller, is that you can run an empire and be present with your family. So one thing people didn't know about John D. Rockefeller is that on some of the weekdays, he's actually spent the afternoons with his kids. And he actually used the telegram to communicate with his teams to build through all the railroads and the oil pipes using a telegram. So he actually established a way of doing that. So I don't think I have reached that where John D. Rockefeller is, but I hope to reach there some way. So when I have my free time, that's usually what I do, spending time with my family and maybe with friends and reading or maybe go for a walk, long walk in Singapore to sort of think and reflect about things. Sounds very good. So I guess you're not doing too much binge watching of Game of Thrones or anything like that. So. You no, know, yes, we do watch Game of Thrones. My wife and I, some <laughs> of course, us are every fans of Game of Thrones. I don't even have time to watch Game of Thrones. So, all right, anyway, so let's move on now. So let's talk a little bit about the podcast. So in the past three years, you've done 199 interviews already. And uh, so out of those 199, what's the most surprising or shocking thing that you heard from any of your interviewees? So the most surprising thing to me is probably the amount of growth that centered into Asia for the past decade, leading mainly from China, India, and probably soon from Indonesia. And the growth also meant that innovation is bursting out of the region. So if you think about how dominant WeChat is in terms of bypassing iOS and Android as a messaging app to be the central platform for Chinese users to pay their bills, to book a hairdresser, to do court proceedings. And then you think about SoftBank's Pepper Robot in Japan helping the geriatric population to be able to help them to perform daily exercises and services. And then you look at the deep research in semiconductors coming from TSMC in Taiwan and Samsung in Korea. You'll be amazed at actually how much Asia is actually innovating in scale. I mean, we talk about Shenzhen's hardware manufacturing capability, right? And they are like a AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, but it's a- AWS for hardware plug-and-play build. And then sometimes I like to think about it for myself is I often thought the impact for this podcast is actually bringing the technology and business stories of 4.4 billion population to the rest of the world. Yeah, it is quite large in Asia. I think I realized that I've been out here for about nine years now and just like the, the growth and the opportunities. Um, you know, like, you know, we've got two countries that have about 1.3 billion people each and it just sort of it leads for explosive growth, but also a lot of innovation. And I agree with you about what you see out of Samsung and especially out of TSMC. You know, it's funny because a lot of people don't know who TSMC is, yet it's a really, it's a massive company in the semiconductor industry. So now going back to your interview, so of those 199, it's, it's difficult. I know you'd love that all of your listeners to listen to all of them, but some of them won't have the time to listen to all 199. Is there one in particular that you think that was actually a great interview? That's one that everybody, I wish they could hear. Oh, they must be listening to the Besides mine, of course, I'm sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that's a difficult one because every interview has actually generated an insight to how I originally framed the interview towards. Probably the two interviews that I did with Horace Didu from Isimco, which actually spanned over six hours. So the original conversation with him was actually, we planned for one hour for each of the topics. And then we ended up doing three hours on top of that one hour for both conversations. The thing about Horace Didu is that he actually analyzed things very analytically. And every conversation I have with him often accelerated two years of my learning in technology disruption and business models. So if I were to tell my audiences, I probably highly recommend the six episodes that I actually broke all three hours down to three episodes that where we discuss things like modular revolution, startup strategy, Pixar, Apple, and cars. I think that is probably the interview that gives me the most insights and it helped me to think a lot more about how to bring innovation to and products to the users that I deal with from day to day in my daily life. Okay, very good. And now of those 200 interviews, you've also talked to people from many different countries with many different backgrounds who work in all different types of industries, whether it's technology or media, covering the markets of Asia and global as well. So you've gone through a lot of people, but I'm sure you must have a wish list of some people that you'd like to talk to in the future or topics that you haven't really covered yet that you're hoping to cover in the coming months. So can you give us some insight into that? Yes. You know who I want to get onto the show? Masayoshi son of SoftBank. That's impossible. <laughs> Of course, Jack Ma Alibaba will, will also be good, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or Pony Ma from Tencent or Tony Fernandez from Asia. Of course, these CEOs are very hard to get. One thing I'm pretty interested to do is actually to talk to foreign correspondents, industry analysts, and top leaders like yourself about some of the interesting things that are happening in terms of technology trend developments within the region. One other thing that I have always been very curious is actually looking deep dive into some more companies within the Asia region. For example, let me tell you about the Tata Group in India, Dalian Wanda in China, who's actually buying up a lot of Hollywood studios, right? And some of the verticals like how real estate and agriculture are transforming in the region because people don't know a lot about that China has actually created modular architecture. They have actually delivered the tallest building within the span of 14 days using prefab. So some of these things is actually happening all here. And I would like to talk to more people about these space. And of course, family businesses as well. They are actually very important. There are a lot of Asian powerful families. What are their Zeons doing? And if possible, one last thing I also want to do is to talk to someone from the uh, American or European multinationals, for example, Facebook, Microsoft, which is based in Asia and actually discuss what they are. For. Okay, sounds very good. And now what we're going to do is take a look at the current market situation. So, and this is where I'm going to go to some of the questions that came in on Twitter. And uh, Wang Wu asked a question and conveniently, um, since you are the drone expert, he would like to know what are your perspectives on drones in Asia Pacific? And I'll add something on top of that. How long is it going to be before I can get my Pran Wantami delivered to my home via drone? Okay, so for a lot of people who may not know the story is that I led a joint team from Singapore Post and IDA Labs, or now known as the IMDA's Pixel Labs, to do the first secure authenticated mail and packet drone delivery from Lorong Halos to Pulau Ubin in Singapore. So Pulau Ubin is this small remote island in Singapore. So one thing that we were originally doing was we have a real problem. The problem is actually we have a postman who is very old in the age of 73 and we record him twice from retirement to deliver about 40 letters a day 
to the island's residents. I mean, this is probably one job that a lot of people don't want to do these days, and hence we need to think about technology. So we decided that we want to do the drone delivery to complement our efforts to upscale our postman. So what happened was we needed to think about what it means, drone delivery means in the world of postal delivery network. How do we reimagine it as based on what we do? So traditionally, how we thought about it was we have a sender, we have a recipient. So at the recipient end, a key is required to open the mailbox to collect the mail. And in the polar wind trial, we deploy the drone and we fly about two kilometers to the landing zone. And a postman actually waited there with a smartphone to authenticate that he's the rightful recipient. So the drone is only programmed that only when it receives the authentic signal within the range, it will actually land. Otherwise, it will fly back within three minutes. So we did that delivery very successfully. So what have we learned, right? Two things. One, to your uh, to answer your question, we are not going to be able to deliver your one time to your house through drone delivery flight. Okay, it's just the normal question that everybody asks me in conferences where when will I be able to deliver drone delivery with pizzas? The reason for this is actually unit economics. So the drone price today, the first drone price that we did was $1,500 to make sure that it has all the security features, all the telemetry, all the tracking, and all the navigation. That price is actually now halved uh, by Moore's Law for drones. Okay, When a drone cost is going to reach something like a sub-100, cost, which is the same drone we have, then I think that that kind of delivery is possible. But what I thought was more interesting that we learned is that the drone delivery problem is actually not a aviation problem. It's also a communications problem. So one of the reasons how we got this flight to work is actually we managed to get the telco authority, the regulatory body that actually regulates the telco side, which is actually IMDA, which is my partner, to align with the aviation authority to get a special frequency to allow our drones to fly. If we not have not done that, none of that would have happened. So when, uh, when I was actually advising US Postal Services and even FAA and many other regulatory bodies, they actually were surprised that actually aligning the, the regulatory authorities on the cybersecurity and the telecommunications fronts is actually pretty important for drone delivery to, to work. So where do I think this will go? I think a lot is going to be in the enterprise space, mainly in agriculture, in imaging, mainly in oil and mining, and mainly in even looking at fault analysis for buildings. I think this is something that I think drones is going to be pretty big in Asia. And the largest drone manufacturing is in China. So a lot of activity is going to be happening there. But I think there's still pockets of innovation happening in the software side, and that will actually mainly will be coming from the US side. It's interesting because also in places like Seoul, the whole city of Seoul is listed as a drone-free zone. So, I mean, a lot of cities don't really want them just flying all over the place. And in Singapore, they're very select about where you can fly them. So the last thing I actually want is my food delivered via drone. So I'm more than happy to either cook at home or go out and eat instead. So uh, one last question on the drone side. A couple of years ago, Amazon quoted as saying they thought they could be doing drone deliveries for under a dollar. You don't have to give a long explanation. Do you think that's possible or not? So based on the unit economics cost that I've spoken to different people, I've spoken to people from the your former employer IDC, Gartner, a lot of people are pricing based on present technology, they are pricing the drone delivery between eight to twelve dollars. I think Amazon benefits from the economies of scale of AWS. So they may be able to price it down to one dollar. But I think that they didn't put their research costs inside there. So if I were to take a longer view, it's possible, except that 
I forgot to also mention this. Recently, there's a regulation for drones. For most of these, what we call quadcopter kind of drones, they create a lot of noise pollution. So I think the European Commission has actually have a regulatory law that I think that it cannot exceed a certain amount of some a certain amount of decibels. If it does, then it actually con- constitute as sound pollution, similar to aviation aircraft as sound pollution as well, like the you know supersonic jets. Okay, but didn't the US with the uh, the FAA regulations around drones? Didn't they also say that the deliveries would have to be from somebody um, within line of sight of where the drone is going to be landing as well? So that's not the problem, right? Because you can actually do things like you can have a van that actually drives, and then basically have a drone mount there, and actually within one kilometer range, then the drone actually deploys out of the van. So if you look at companies like Daimler, they did something with MetaNet, uh, was also from uh, Singularity U, where they van is actually going to a remote location and the drone actually flies out within one kilometer to deliver the package to the intended recipient within that. So so it's possible. I don't think drones itself can be the actual solution. It needs to be coupled with different solutions here and there. Okay, very good. So now let's move on to a question from Liv Nomad, who asks, how do you think Asia's e-commerce battles will play out? And maybe you could also give a quick update on the status of Amazon in Singapore, since we've been waiting for that forever and it's finally here. You just can't get a delivery. So I work for a company that's invested by Alibaba. So whatever I say here is basically based on public information. But here's what I'm going to tell you about. So to give you a strategic overview of the situation, recently I've done this in-depth analysis of Alibaba and Tencent in Southeast Asia with the China Tech Talk podcast hosted by John Altman and Matthew Brennan. You can listen to that for more details. What I think is going to happen for the Asia e-commerce battles is that in the next few years, the major battlegrounds will be in Southeast Asia and India. The situation will actually be divided between three companies, Amazon, Alibaba, and Tencent. So we saw Alibaba has acquired Lazada, Raymart in Southeast Asia, Paytm in India, and they are extending their footprint across the region through investment and acquisitions. They're building up their logistics network through Singapore Post, which is the company which I work in the e-commerce logistics. Now, Tencent, which is very well known for WeChat in China, has recently entered the market and backed Flipkart in India. And rumors they actually might also acquire Tokopedia in Indonesia, which is actually the largest equivalent of Flipkart in Indonesia. So what they will do is they will bring Jingdong.com, which is actually the number two e-commerce site in China, into the region. And then given that we have the third guy, which is Amazon, being themselves are now entering the region by building their own capabilities. Now, so here's the problem. Amazon so far have warned in India and Japan by having their own capabilities, but there are pushbacks happening. So recently, Yamato Group in Japan has stopped working with Amazon because same-day deliveries, basically they're losing money per delivery. So now Amazon has to find a new group of delivery companies in order to help them to facilitate their delivery in Amazon Japan. And I think they had the same situation happening to them the first week in Singapore where there was over excessive amount of orders and they're only working with probably the number four and number five players. So moving forward, they may need to work with the different logistics players that might not be owned by them themselves, but also that might be owned by their rivals. So this would be something that would be pretty interesting to see. Is Southeast Asia going to be the Waterloo for Amazon? This is something pretty of interest to me because there is a possibility that the Chinese companies may team up to take out Amazon first and then fight among themselves. 
And we have seen Tencent and Alibaba have done that for the ride-sharing space in China. Would that happen for the e-commerce space in Southeast Asia and India? I'm not sure about that. Okay. Very good. And then now the last question in this section, we're going to go from uh, somebody from 500 Startups, Arnaud Bonzam. He would like to know, what are your three favorite underrated startups in Singapore? That's a hot one, and I'm going to pick three that's in my preference. First is CSAA Group, which deals with insurance and healthcare benefits, run by a lady called Roslyn Koo. Lunch, actually, which I happen to be an investor, and, and I really admire the founders, Violet and Jamie, and they actually do dating for the region, both online and offline. And of course, I do workspace because my wife is the founder and CEO, and I think she's doing a good job, and I'm a first and earnest supporter. What I think is surprising for all my three underrated startups is that they're all founded and run by women. And that's impressive in itself. That sounds like you should do a joint interview with them to talk about the challenges being a female entrepreneur in Asia or the opportunities that you get by being a female entrepreneur. Both Roslyn and Violet were on our show. Okay, now we're going to change tack and look a little bit about the future. So what technology or technologies do you think are really undervalued today and what will like, you know, basically take for them to rise to the forefront? So what do you think we'll really be talking about in 12 or 24 months? So a lot of people probably will tell me it will be AI, blockchain, and possibly IoT. I think these will be high-impact technologies that still will take around another two to five years to get there. Two areas that I thought was interesting that I think a lot of people are not looking into is in the biotech space, which where genomic sequence is now for to sequence the human genome now takes about a thousand US dollars. Just to give you some sense of perspective, when I was working on the human genome project, it took us a billion dollars to sequence the first human genome. So within a decade, the genome sequencing has actually brought down by three to six orders of magnitude. Then the question is, now that you have all this genome sequence, what happens? So what I can do now is basically I can take your blood samples, Charles, right? My blood samples and basically start doing a lot of population studies at scale. That means looking at whether we have certain pre-existing conditions, whether we can be treated for early cancer and even other diseases. So that intersection between biotech and computer science, I think is at really at the front line now. And there are some companies that are actually doing pretty interesting stuff, but it's been undervalued and it has not surfaced a lot. And then plus the CRISPR, which is the genome editing technique that was discovered in the last two years, I think it's going to change the way how we think about computer science and biotech. It's, it's almost like there was there used to be a way to read your data. Think of computer science. Now we have that because we can sequence the human genome. And now you have a way to input and output the data, which is using CRISPR to do the editing of the data. So which is very similar to what computers were like maybe in the 1980s when the first personal computer comes out. So I think that's one space. The other space I thought would be pretty interesting, but mainly in construction. So in terms of digital transformation, construction space is the lowest digitized sector. Two things are happening there. One is 3D printing and additive manufacturing. When prefab in that space, materials, I think that is also a space that is not as undervalued and has not been brought to the forefront. I think that uh, on the real estate side and the construction side, I agree with you. I think it's definitely lower hanging fruit. Everyone tends to invest so heavily in fintech, but a lot of the it's very difficult to find a lot of solutions that I think make a lot of sense for the market. Whereas when you look at the prop tech market, which is just starting to take off, 
Um, I think there's a lot more opportunities for the startups in Asia in that space. So especially with the growth that's going on across the region, whether it's, you know, from people moving into the middle class or just expansion in cities. So I think that side's going to be very interesting going forward. And then the final question in this section is from Asia, Asia Recon would like to know, what will the future look like for technology in Asia? Which I guess we sort of covered off, but maybe this, what else, what are the challenges we're going to face to get there? I think what is going to happen is that China will compete directly with US head-to-head on the breakthrough technologies. So what we'll be talking about is AI, IoT, and blockchain technology. So China has its own version of Ethereum. It's called Quantum, Q-T-U-M. And it also has its own version of AI that's now going into apps like Toutiao and WeChat. And then the rest of Asia will actually be finding their niche. So for example, I guess SoftBank has acquired Boston Dynamics and Sharp from Google. And hence now SoftBank is going to lead in robotics. So because they already have the SoftBank pepper and once they put up together with Boston Dynamics and the technology from Sharp, I think we could possibly have the first robot assistant that will be coming in. Taiwan would actually drive most of the semiconductors. And what is going to be interesting is having self-driving cars. So Taiwan is basically, for every self-driving car, it's like having eight Mac Pros inside a vehicle. So there's going to be a bigger demand of semiconductors. So how fast these transistors are going to be processing information will become very interesting in the next decade or so. And Korea probably in screens, solid state drives, and a lot of the IoT things. And I think Charles, you are far more advanced in this subject matter than I do. And I think what is also going to be interesting is most of the growth markets will be in Asia for the next decade. I agree. I mean, especially for IoT, I think China is definitely driving the global market. Just that a lot of the analyst firms don't look at it that way because a lot of those global analysts are based out of the US and they don't see the growth that's going on in the tier two and tier three cities in China. And it is just staggering. Yeah. And then I think you have seen a lot of very interesting deployments of IoT, which is actually cheaper than what you would have originally expected if you had done in a European or American city, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And like, I think actually the interesting, one of the recent developments, we're seeing the launch of all these low-power WAN networks right now. And what we see is the take-up in China is just outstanding. So, I mean, that's really the one market I will be watching to see if like, how successful it will be. Yeah, you're seeing a lot of growth coming out of there right now. So all the numbers and how well MBIOT is doing, you should always break it down by China versus the rest of the world because it's just exploding up there right now. Okay, so now we're going to go to the closing section. So a little bit more on a personal note. Rick Lee would like to know, what three books do you recommend for your listeners? And just as a warning, um, I was having lunch with Bernard a couple of weeks ago, and uh, my wife made the mistake of asking him about what books he read, and it went on for about the next 30 minutes. He's read basically everything that's ever been written, I do believe. So what three, though, of those books do you actually recommend? Okay, I'm just going to talk about the three recent most interesting books I've read. The first one is Yuval Noah Hanari called Sapiens. And if you want to read the second book, it's called Homo Deus. It's about the human history in the last 150,000 years, but in a very different perspective. The second will probably be Clayton Christensen's and a, and a various authors called Competing Against Luck. And this is where this is the first time he actually explained the, mod, the theory of jobs to be done. So... How does innovation actually become mainstream is because it solves the jobs to be done for the user. So for example, the jobs to be done for an iPhone is not being a phone. It's actually being a communications device that allow you to access information or to be able to send information to different people at any time and anywhere. And then the last book that I'm thinking of, which I thought was interesting, and I actually read this over a plane right from 
uh, Singapore to Beijing was a book called Hitmakers, How Things Become Popular by Derek Thompson, uh, who's an editor of The Atlantic. So uh, this book actually tells you how songs, how creative work or even like products actually become popular. And it tells you some of the features of how things actually get popular. And being a lover of building products is something that I thought would be very interesting for people who want to know. Okay, sounds very good. So now you've done 200 episodes, which means when I come back in two years and I'm interviewing you for your 300th episode, the world will have moved on quite a bit. I mean, let's face it, the markets are moving at breakneck speed right now. So what do you think will change in the industry, um, in technology, um, or in Asia between your 200th and 300th episode? I have a hunch that we'll still be talking about augmented reality, mm -hmm. Internet of Things, IoT. Yep artificial intelligence, and blockchain by the 300 episode. But they may be superseded by new marketing terms or takes a different form. Uh, well, we always need new buzzwords to keep us going. I think I would definitely agree with you on this one. I think uh, we're barely scratching the surface with IoT right now. Um, and it isn't about the technology. The technology is actually there. Um, where we struggle about it is organizationally and getting people with technically uh, technical skill sets to be able to talk to business skill sets and jointly develop solutions that deliver tangible business value. So I think it's going to take a while on that. That's true. But I also hazard a very educated guess that AR is going to be breaking out within the next two years. So because of what Apple has been doing with the AR kit, and, but when it comes to Internet of Things and AI, I think it probably take at least another five to 10 years. Reason is because a lot of these are actually building up infrastructure. So I think where IoT and AI is going to be really important is in the automation front and a lot in basically deploying the 5G networks. And once with 5G networks happening, then you would be able to get self-driving cars because one of the biggest challenges for self-driving cars is actually going to be in getting the communications of the data across the 5G network. And that's where you need to have a lot of bandwidth to hold video data within the roads and with street lights and with the cars. There's one that I couldn't pin down, which is blockchain. So I think blockchain is one that I couldn't put a hold on, but it's probably going to be the foundation to the next stage of internet technologies with a decentralized internet. And it would be something that's pretty interesting. And I think at the 300 episode, I think probably we will still be talking about that. They'll still be looking for the business models that are they can actually deploy, because it is a little bit more complex than it sounds. And it sounds complex to start with, let's face it. So, and You think that we will still be talking about these things in a year's time? I, I definitely do. So, But I hope, I hope you're right about augmented reality. I made the mistake of coming out a couple of years ago, and I was confident at that point we would see augmented reality take off in the enterprise, because the technology was proven, there was a number of use cases, it still shocks me that we're barely doing anything with it right now. And it isn't down to the technology. Um, it's down to more the human impact on it. So that's quite frustrating. Mm, I agree with you on that. And I hope that the AR kit ends. Maybe, you know, we'll be surprised by this September launch from Apple. Maybe we will get the glasses in the end. Well, we'll see what they come out looking like. So, all right. So one last final question before we kill it here today. So what does the future hold for Analyze Asia? That's a great question. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I've been funding the site for the past three years out of my own cash and of course rebuilding the site into this new form. 
definitely I want to bring more content to my audience. One thing that's in the podcasting world, just as text and video content, the way to be sustainable is actually not to leverage advertising as a business model. So the way forward, I think, is going to be subscription. So in the next couple of weeks, I will be working on a patronage model where my listeners can be my patron and help me to fund the production of the podcast because that will also reduce the amount of time that I spent a lot in editing and actually producing the podcast. And I'll be working on those details and I'll be sharing that with every one of you out there. Specifically for those who are funding the Analyze Asia podcast, they will also get access to premium content and also get their names read out during the podcast and be listed on my site. So here's my appeal to the rest of you out there. So if you really want our media business in Asia to reach the next level, then we need to find a way to make it sustainable so that people can produce high quality content. And that's something I would want to achieve hopefully in the next three years. I think that probably that's where I'm thinking about it. And Charles, yeah, that's basically it. Okay, very good. Well, it's been fun to finally turn the tables on you and ask you the questions that I'm sure your listeners have been waiting to hear the answers to. So it's been a lot of fun being on this side. I would like again to congratulate you for reaching 200 episodes in less than three years. That's more than one podcast a week. So you've been a busy man and you provided a lot of value to all of us who sit on the other side with our headphones on, um, pretending to work, but actually just listening to your podcast in the background. Yeah, but there's always one last question, Charles. How do my audience find you? I can be found on Twitter at CRA Singapore. My website is charlesreedanderson.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn as Charles Reed Anderson. And luckily, I'm the only Charles Reed Anderson on LinkedIn. So it won't be too hard to find. And everything about IoT, AI, and I think soon you'll be covering blockchain as well, right? I am going to be doing that at the next keynote in October. Yes, I'll be doing AI and blockchain as the main components, along with low-power ones. Yeah, and I'm definitely going to get you back on the show. Okay. You can find me at bleongcw at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to me at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACAST, and TuneIn. Of course, Google Play in the U.S. market. Uh, recommend us on Overcast. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And of course, drop me an email, give me your feedback and there's more to come, of course, in the next one year. So once again, Charles, thank you for hosting me on the other side of the house. It's been an absolute pleasure. Congratulations again.